This is the Hervoy Moritz Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Bienvenido, dobrodošli, willkommen, welcome to the second hour uh, of the program, the Hervoy Moritz Show on TNT Radio. Our next guest is Matthew Arid, a journalist, lecturer, uh, author of a, of a number of uh, great books, a founder of the Canadian Patriot Review, co-founder, I believe, of the Rising Tide Foundation. I also think he's a fellow at Moscow University, uh, which is run by Ed Lozansky, someone who I have also interviewed in the past. I've spoken to Matthew many times on my Geopolitics and Empire podcast, and recently uh, his wife, uh, Cynthia Chung, also guested on the program. His mind is literally like the library of Alexandria. I'm jealous. I don't know how he does it. Uh, welcome, Matthew. Are you there? Oh, that, that's a really generous introduction, Hervohe. Uh, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> and yeah, just to well, you, it's, it's not the Moscow University, it's the American University in Moscow that I, uh, I work with Ed Lozansky on. All right, thank you. I was worried for a second I might get in trouble with the Russians. Uh, thank you for correcting <laughs> me. Um, <laughs> so you were recently uh, interviewed with, uh, I guess now my fellow colleague Jesse on TNT. So you've been on the program before. Uh, I think you guys, I was listening to a bit of it, we're talking about Technocracy, I've talked a lot about technocracy with um, Patrick Wood, one of the preeminent experts uh, on that, and also with your wife. Uh, we talked scientific dictatorship last time uh, on the Geopolitics podcast, and I, I sort of kind of wanted to drop a bomb in, immediately. You know, to, um, There's something that came up this morning. It's a fresh topic. It, it's hot, um, and the question is, and I think this is one of the top questions on everyone's mind. I'm seeing it in my Telegram channel comments. And this is one of the top like three questions of the day. And it's whether Eurasia, the dragon bear, Russia, China, and, and the surrounding, you know, countries are on board with the World Economic Forum, a great reset, uh, or not. And I thought if people would just, you know, have a bit of a pa patience and let me just read something that you wrote. So my last guest was Joaquin Flores. Uh, on my podcast, and he posted to his Telegram this morning something that I believe you wrote. Uh, and so, um, let's see, you wrote, quote, my immediate response. So you were criticizing James uh, Corbett's black pill thesis, which is going viral. Um, and let me just put out a disclaimer that I respect greatly both James Corbett, I've had him on my podcast recently, and your work, Matt, And I, you know, I studied at the Geneva School of Diplomacy, so I'm a, I'm a diplomat. I like to be friendly with, with everyone. And I haven't put my foot down either way. I see evidence for, for, for both theories, but you, you put, put out some stuff that really made us think. So you wrote, quote, Wait, I be, love before how you, before you read that, um, let me sure. just say as well, I also do respect James Corbett's research, uh, and his work that he's put out. There's a lot of invaluable stuff. And so I don't want anybody to get a, a across the idea that it's anything personal against James or any animosity. So that I just wanted to also have a little addendum there, but you can go for the, uh, you could read that if you'd like. Yeah. And I think people need to be reminded of this. Often there's, there's people who have this binary type of, of thinking. And, and this is what this is all about. Geopolitics, you know, uh, investigating. It's looking at all these little, little pieces and putting, putting together the puzzle and said, and so you wrote, I love how Corbett is completely incapable of ever looking at what Russia or China are actually doing in terms of actions, which undermine the depopulation agenda. There are the biggest development projects now underway, pulling over 1 billion out of poverty led by China's Belt and Road, which is in total opposition to the depopulation program. 
yet it's like none of that uh, exists. And I, when I read that, I'm like, yeah, you make a good point. China's, you know, China is industrializing, and you know that, that is kind of contrary to the depopulation angle. Uh, you go on also to write uh, another paradox that Corbett seems to be happy ignoring: if all sides are all controlled and have been so long, then why didn't the oligarchy get their technocratic feudalism a long time ago? Um, I mean, Soros had his own agent in the highest position of power in China, ready to privatize everything under the Fourth Industrial Revolution in 1983. Uh, so why was that agent arrested with his allies and Soros given a lifetime ban from China? And you continue along um, these lines. Uh, you also say, why not let Kazakhstan get a Soros regime change treatment a couple of uh, months ago? So you, you, you do... And one more point I thought was interesting. You said, yes, AI and digital currency are used by Eurasia, but what is their function? How is the system functioning differently in which such things would be used? Are digital currencies or AI intrinsically evils, or is there a principle of a function, design, and intent that determines whether tools will be used to enslave or support human life? So, I mean, I have to get, hand it to you. You bring up fair and good points. So... You know, can you can you continue this line of thought and and, and give us your view? Yeah, sure. Um, I think the the point that I often try to make with people uh, who do tend to fall into a very black or white polarized Manichaean sort of approach to analyzing either history or current geopolitical events is that there is there is a nuance that you have to appreciate. And and when talking about the United States, um, it was very common. Um, for a very long time for people to think that the U.S. was one behemoth monolith, you know, one imperial thing that had just run roughshod over the world without any opposition that it, you know, since especially John F. Kennedy and his brother had had been killed. Uh, and it's true, like I didn't see a lot of resistance from anywhere within the establishment structures of the USA for 50 years. And it was only where, you know, you had a sort of um, factor of, of Trump that upset the Hillary Clinton intended victory in 2016 that you got a sense that, okay, for all of his troubles, and there's a lot of big problems with Trump, we don't have to go into that, but you could see that there was something not falling into place according to script. Cause for a long time, you know, anytime, uh, a war was supposed to happen or towers were supposed to fall to justify an, an extended police state or bombing of a country, it would happen relatively easily up until Really, Gaddafi was killed and, and there was a regime change in Ukraine. Um, <clears throat> so it was hard to see that there was any chance of another characteristic of the USA, which is why I wrote my books on the clash of the two Americas to give people a better sense of this deep state thing, how it, you know, what was, what were its characteristics going back to 1776. And that also applies when you're analyzing Russia or China. Um, there is deep state penetration. There are traders who are beholden to an international financier oligarchy who have been embedded within the structures of power. And then you have this other force that does not want to sacrifice their ancient civilizations on some sacrificial altar in a, in a, in, you know, some utopian scheme for a new world order. There, there, if one were to ignore that, um, that clash within different countries, you miss all of the rich, the richness of history and of our, our present conditions. You, you miss the fight. Um, so yeah, in the course of that mini, I'm going to turn that into a longer article, uh, my response to Corbett, but I find that there are, we all have certain hypotheses or, or governing assumptions that we use in our system of thinking when we analyze, uh, empirical facts, right? Uh, how do we imbue order and meaning into the, the, the facts of world events? 
And so I think that Corbett being a follower of people like Anthony Sutton, who's a, you know, another very good researcher who's done a lot of work on world history, um, on the, the Wall Street funding of the Bolsheviks and, and Hitler and all sorts of things. Um, there's a certain cynical idea of this very, this variety of libertarianism of the Austrian school that posits that all forms of, of central government are all equally tyrannical because they, they, inhibit uh freedom to do whatever you want to do as an individual which is defined as the only true freedom is the freedom to just be left alone i don't believe that that is a really legit idea of freedom and i don't think anything really has ever been built uh as far as like large-scale infrastructure anything that has that uh libertarian characteristic of just free markets totally disinvested from government um and i think some governments have been used for fascist ends and other ones for good ends, depending upon the character of morality and reason of the statesman governing the helm, whether a JFK or a, or a, a Lincoln, it, you know, if you have somebody like that in power using using central government, it's going to have a very different characteristic than, let's say, a Hitler or a Mussolini or a Napoleon. Um, but a libertarian can't see that, and so anything which any evidence that um, there is a fight run by people utilizing broad power within governments against this depopulation world government agenda cannot be seen. It doesn't, it doesn't mesh with the intellectual filters. Um, and I would say just on the issue of, of Soros not being allowed to operate in China or Russia, that's a big deal for me. Like, you know, he's, he's running <laughs> him. Well, him and the, the thing that, that he works for that he's beholden to, um, is running so much of our education systems in the West, our governing structures, our political open, you know, these open society operations are all over the, the rules based international order. But in China, he's been banned since 1989, since his, uh, his puppet Zhao Ziyang, who became, uh, who was premier and then became secretary general of the Chinese Communist Party for two years was, uh, was put in, basically was, was jailed in his own house under house arrest for 15 years after he tried to run a coup funded by Soros. Gene Sharp, you know, the, the father of modern color revolutions was in Tiananmen Square. George Bush Sr. was also on the ground, uh, who had operated, you know, who ran the CIA for a period. Um, people don't realize that this was a regime change attempt in 1989. And, and as the, you know, coming out of that, Soros's tool was was again imprisoned. Uh, Soros was banned for life from operating or creating any type of organization in China, and China kept a hold of their of their um, you know national banking systems instead of having them privatized the way Zhao Ziyang was moving. Um, he was he was known as the Gorbachev or Yeltsin of China. Um, he brought in Milton Friedman and all sorts of liberalizers. Same thing for Russia too. You know, like Russia has banned Soros since two thousand and what was it thirteen or fourteen? I forget now the date. Um, why did that happen? Like, why didn't they just allow these, these freaks to continue to run and, and control their societies? You know, why did oligarchs of Russia have to seek sanctuary in London or in Florida to avoid arrest if they didn't want to play by the new rules of the game? So, uh, that, that Putin put on the table when he came in in 1999. So if you just ignore all of that, yeah, it just seems like there's a lot of parallels to, um, the great reset you know, agenda coming out of Davos and the sort of words you hear used by, let's say, Xi Jinping or Putin who have spoken at Davos events, they use similar words like new world order. Does that imply that the, the, they're thinking about the same thing of the new system that's going to be, uh, this depopulation, one world post nation state government? 
uh, the way the Davos crowd is pushing, or is there a totally different conception of what that operating system is going to look like? So there's different ways of debunking that and, and addressing that, um, that idea that they're all in on it. But I think ultimately it's like, why aren't we dead yet? You know, like <laughs> if all sides are as equally controlled by these overlord, you know, this wannabe master class running society, then why didn't they win already a long time ago and get their technocratic feudal system? Yeah, that's also a good point that you, you brought up. And also, you know, I'm, I am an undergrad in, in history. I studied history and taught history. And if you look at that long arc uh, of history, the past few, um, few thousand years, all right, we, we were without the technology that we have today, but it was also a struggle time and time again by the elites, whether it was in, you know, monarchies or empires to gain such broad, you know, power over swaths of, of the earth. Uh, and that took many decades and centuries of, of wars for, for them to do that. And yeah, you make the point where it's always been a struggle between elites and us, the, the, the non-elites. And you also mentioned how all of Russia was brought under control during the privatization of the 1990s, where basically the Western agent Yeltsin, you know, w- with NATO and Soros taking control of the entire post-Soviet space. And uh, it just popped up again recently in the social media feeds, a clip from 2015 of George Soros. I mean, this stuff is out there. I can't believe I haven't seen it before. Soros literally, I mean, the arrogance and hubris of this man, literally saying, you know, I, George Soros, came in after the collapse of the Soviet Union and picked up the pieces. And now it's the, the Soviet, you know, Russia is the Soros empire. He literally said that. And uh, for for me, one of the issues is, when looking at this is is the degree or level of penetration by the globalists or corporations and you know their networks into the national governments and it varies from government to government and it's what i call the x factor right the jfk's the rfk's the mlk's um that croatian american senator from alaska that was uh whose plane was taken down last name was begich i forget his name uh the mexican presidential candidate in the 1990s coloseo who was assassinated Trump, as you mentioned, to, to perhaps to a degree. So what would be in Russia and China, from your view, like that X factor? The, um, who is the, the, is it Putin or is it a group around Putin? Who is it that, where yeah, does, I mean, lie that, that, that sovereign power in, in these countries? Well, you, you just look at where the evidence of the fight, uh, between the traitors, uh, like who, where, who are the traitors? First of all, it's useful to just map out some examples in both countries of people who have behaved in a, in a treacherous way, uh, consistently. Um, and then where has there been pushback from within their own ranks? You know, um, I think one quick example in China's case of a very loud, dramatic example, um, can be found in the figure of one Jack Ma, right? Sort of the Bill Gates type synthetic personality character of, uh, of China. Um, this guy who's, you know, treated like he's, he's got a projected image of being this great genius who runs Alibaba and all, all these things. He's a multi-billionaire. He's also a world economic forum trustee, um, and a big devotee of the fourth industrial revolution in a very, you know, insidious way. Um, but he's a part of his whole career has been sponsored and patron, you know, his patrons have been found around, uh, the Zhang family. Um, Zhang Zemin was a, a president in the 1990s. Um, but that, that's a very old establishment family in China that manages what's called the Shanghai clique 
a lot's been written about this. Um, there's been some authors on Asia Times and others who have, uh, you know, mapped out certain elements of the, the Shanghai clique of multi-billionaires uh, who are very Western-leaning. Um, and Jack Ma, you know, what, what did he do in October of last year? He he gave a speech where he essentially called for an insurrection of the Chinese uh, banking system. Um, and immediately after, I think it was like 24, he didn't even have 24 hours where he was like literally just, you know, people were wondering what the, what happened to Jack Ma, you know, like he disappeared. There's all sorts of speculation. He was basically just brought to his mansion and, uh, given the right act, you know, and he was pretty much stripped of all of his privileges and powers that he had enjoyed. Uh, you know, he was, he had a lot of high level protection and a lot of his assets were stripped too. Um, but he was put in his place in a serious way. And he's alive. He's in his mansion. He's allowed to, you know, swim in his pool and, and enjoy his wealth, uh, or what he was allowed to keep. But he was really put in his place. There's been since two, since Xi Jinping came in, there's been a massive, uh, attack on this infestation, this, this deep state structure that had embedded itself. A lot of it had left when, uh, Zhao Ziyang was, was ousted from power in 1989 and he died 15 years later in house arrest. A, a lot of his allies, well, he ran a, you know, this guy ran a, a think tank with George Soros and one of the key guys, his right hand men, was uh, put in prison. Um, some of the people were were brought out uh, through Operation Yellowbird using Hong Kong triads, MI6 and CIA um, to avoid imprisonment, and they were they were all brought into the United States and Canada to where they've sort of been running a, a, a an anti Chinese government movement in exile uh, since the 80s. There were there were other floods of 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 um, enemies of the state escaping in waves. 1997 was a big one where Hong Kong was returned from the British. And a lot of the uh, the oligarchs who, were, who had been loyal to the British since, you know, the opium war days, um, it was always an outpost, right? It still is known as CIA of the Pacific. Uh, but the Anglo-American imperial or uh, intelligence operations um, had a massive amount of agents um, embedded in high-level positions within the Hong Kong uh, elite. And a lot of them weren't sure what the new government of mainland was going to do once they were returned uh, to mainland um, from the British. And, be, in, you know, before waiting to find out, a lot of them left, again, given safe sanctuary in Canada and the USA. Kind of like what happened with the Russian oligarchs um, when Putin started coming down, who was, a, a, uh, who was brought in by um, um, Primakov, who was a, a great patriot of, of Russia. Um, he was a, a premier for a period. Um, but Putin was brought in and nobody really knew where he was where he stood but when it became clear that he was fighting to renationalize things like the the privatized Gazprom and other uh, state assets that had been privatized in the 1990s um many of those oligarchs to escape arrest some did actually get arrested but uh those who didn't want to play by the new rules they they found a sanctuary in London and in some cases Florida and New York where there's a like a Moscow on the Thames where all of these oligarchs to avoid getting in trouble <laughs> were uh you know found a new home so i think when you look today you have people who have been kept from i don't know the the details you know i'm not an insider but i'm you can infer based upon uh the effects of of policy actions you could see that there has been a russian central bank which has been privatized heavily and then it was sort of reconstituted in 1991 under uh, gorbachev and then used by by yeltsin a, a complete western uh, operative as you pointed out, um, it, it, in order to 
keep Russia under the yoke of the IMF diktats and the World Trade Organization's rules of the game of globalization. That means privatizing, no no use of state credit, right? Like this is one of the, the verboten um, sins of a nation under the IMF rules of globalization 1.0 that's currently collapsing is that no nation is allowed to utilize a state national bank to emit credit for its own development. That has been banned. JFK tried moving in that direction, and that didn't end well for him. Um, China, because they ousted Jiang Zemin, they were able to keep control of their national bank, and that's why they've been able to emit such large-scale credit uh, as we've seen, where, I mean, the biggest infrastructure in world history, science tech, uh, has been occurring. And they've been trying to get other na- other nations to adopt that model, but the controls of the IMF and the Western elites are very strong. So Russia has still... Um, this Western liberal crowd of technocrats embedded in their Russian central bank, people like uh, Elvira Nebulina, um, who has just been re-admitted. Uh, I wasn't sure if she was going to be ousted now that there's like a big push for renationalization of a lot of the uh, the operations uh, since the, the war has broken out in Ukraine. Um, I wasn't sure if she was going to be ousted or not because she's demonstrated she's a Yale, you know, conditioned um uh, technocrat. I, I don't think that she's played a very positive role and she's really been a gatekeeper controlling the, uh, the IMF policies in Russia, but yet somehow she has been allowed to stay in there. Um, the nationalists do seem to be grouped around primarily one Sergei Glaziev, who is the uh, minister of Eurasian uh, affairs, Eurasian economic development for the Eurasian economic union that's uh, led by Russia. He is recently, or there's been the announcement of a new commission uh, led by Glaziev. Certain other people are involved, like Sergei Shoigu, um, who have created this commission to create a new financial architecture with China. So it's the Eurasian Economic Union China Commission. Um, and when you look at the types of policies that they've been pushing for, it's all founded upon large-scale open system development. So the opening up of the Arctic, the uh, far Eastern vision that uh, Putin, Shoigu, Lavrov, and others have pointed out to build new advanced cities driven by rail development, interconnectivity um, throughout the Arctic, all the way up into opening up Siberia to real civilizational growth, um, tying that into and integrating it ever more with the Belt and Road Initiative that involves something like 140 countries at this point to varying degrees. Um, it's all it's all a very different idea than the depopulation closed system ideology of the technocrats of Davos, who are absolutely committed to getting everybody into a tiny little cage of deconstruction, you know, to and this has been part of what is if people look at the Great Reset, what is that asking the world or demanding that the world do to decarbonize? It's saying, you know, we have to abide by the the edicts of the Paris Accords and the the outlines of people like Michael Bloomberg and Mark Carney who have called for putting value on activity which undermines the ability for nations to support their people. So instead of investing in dirty things that increase, they say, CO2 output, which they say also their their computer models uh, associate with having caused uh, temperature changes, uh, global warming, um, I'm not saying that this is actually happening. I'm saying this is what their computer models have been inputted to, to, uh, bring as conclusions. CO2 is an enemy, um, has to be disincentivized. So outlawing things like the burning of coal, natural gas, oil, and also nuclear power, all of that is bad. And instead we have to incentivize, put financial 
monetary incentives on things that are very low quality um, and unreliable forms of energy like windmills and solar panels, um, which is only, I mean, has the effect of, on the one hand, driving up the prices of oil and or, or of, of energy, I should say, and uh, and on the other hand, dismantling the ability for nations to melt industrial steel to process the sorts of major uh, concrete and other things needed to support 8 billion lives. You can't do that with windmills. You know, you can't even build a windmill with windmill energy. The quality of it is just such a low-grade quality. You can't melt that quality of, of steel again to make these gigantic windmills, uh, let alone conduct all of the activity needed to to mine the rare earths, which is a huge environmental uh, environmentally destructive thing to do um, to build these things. So that includes solar panels too. You just can't, they're not that sustainable when you look at it from a physical economic standard and you can't, and basically that's where you see the difference between the Russian, China, Eurasian approach to sustainability. What they're, what they're looking at is sustainable growth. So sustained economic development. And they're, they're not shutting down their nuclear. They're, they're investing more in nuclear. They're going for fusion power. That's where all of their investments are located. Yes, they, they also have windmills and solar panels, but that's not what they're basing their economic activity or or destiny around. Um, they're they're producing even more, you know, uh, <laughs> coal fired power plants. China's building even more than they had planned to last year. So is Russia. So natural gas, the same thing. Um, as part of their their idea of what it means to go green, because they're valuing their human lives more than they are this the computer models of Davos or the IPCC. So it's a very, it's a, it's a, just a different paradigm and it's, it's more in alignment with the sort of paradigm we used to have back when John F. Kennedy or Franklin Roosevelt were alive, uh, a long time ago of valuing pulling people out of poverty, you know, um, giving nations the ability to have full spectrum, fully industrial economic bases instead of just having cash cropping monocultures as has been the rule of globalization. Yeah. There's a great book called slaying the sky dragon, if I'm not mistaken, I've actually got a copy here behind me. I read it years ago. I think one of the people involved in writing that book was John O'Sullivan, who funnily enough, I just discovered, has his own um, program here on TNT Radio. And there's a lot of books that describe the, you know, the man-made global warming theory and how that's basically patently false. You know, maybe we have issues with with resource and, and um, what do they call it? The EROI, the... Energy, energy return, return on investment. An investment that's declining. And so we've got those kinds of issues, but the whole CO2 thing, CO2 thing. Yeah. No, no, thank you. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't go for that. Uh, we'll have to take a break here, Matt. And so everyone, um, hold your horses. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes, uh, here on TNT radio. Dolores Cahill on TNT Radio. Everybody actually is liable for, uh, you know, misrepresentation or fraudulent, criminally fraudulent misrepresentation of the tests, including the manufacturers of the tests, the hospitals and the doctors giving a false diagnosis. And also, I suppose, the regulatory authorities in each of our nations, these science committees, right, and the virology labs, because they should be checking the PCR. There should be a positive control. There should be isolation of a virus. There should be a negative control, right? They are actually liable. Yeah, it's amazing. You mentioned the regulatory bodies, um, you know, and uh, the wheels have completely come off them. Weekends with Dolores Cahill on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Papa, when we go see the twins, can we go down to the lake? Only if Kate's with you. Or Mum and I are there too. Mm. 
What are you sighing about? I can swim. I know you can. You're a very good swimmer. But are you forgetting the five? How can I forget the five? You make me say it ten times a day. Slight exaggeration. Principal, shut the gate. Teach your kids to swim. It's great. Supervise, watch your mate, and learn how to resuscitate. Supervise, Harper. Supervise. I'm Laurie Lawrence. Kids alive. Do the Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you won't find PTSD by looking at a thermometer. Sorting out a mental health concern takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a bandage. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, call 1-800-662-HELP for free and confidential information and treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov slash support. When you need to know what's going on around the world and at home, keep it on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right. I'm your host, Hrvoje Moric, here on the second hour of the Hrvoje Moric Show on TNT Radio, where we've been talking to Matt Eret on all things Great Reset. Um, and I thought we could continue. You know, a question that I have is to get your thoughts on where the multipolar world goes from here now in the immediate to near term, uh, we see Russia activating its in-house Mir payment system. It's linking with the Chinese uh, Union Pay. The Indian Rupay is is up and coming. Uh, you know, we've seen India tell Washington to to buzz off and, and proceeds to purchase oil from Russia in rupees. Uh, there are rumors, I don't know if they're true, Pepe Escobar posted on his social media that Russia has in a way nationalized the, the McDonald's chains that have been left over and is using more natural local Russian uh, ingredients. I, I need more to go on than uh, a tweet of an image from Pepe Escobar, so I'm kind of skeptical of such claims until I, ha- I can see more credible um, sources. But we're beginning to see Eurasia and the rest of the world island now um, and maybe parts of the global south alter course, rearrange their supply chains uh, among themselves, as we're seeing with Mir and Union Pay and Rupay and, and the social media, right? We, we, we saw in Russia, I think uh, Facebook was just declared, a, or, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Meta was declared a terrorist uh, organization. And so that's been banned. And so they're, they're now being filled in with the domestic infrastructure. Um, and so, you know, what are your thoughts on these new developments and where things go from here? Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it's a, it's quite a, a dramatic fight, uh, over, and I, I like Pepe Escobar's use of the term globalization 2.0. Like, you know, anybody who still has any illusions that things could possibly go back to the, uh, pre 2020, um, way of doing things or that, that type of economic structure we had had from 1971 until 2020, um, are fooling themselves completely. That, that whole structure was always designed to blow up. It's not, it, it was wrong to call it an economy. It wasn't an economy. When the US dollar was removed from the gold, gold reserve and floated onto the floating exchange rates and then tied as Henry Kissinger, uh, really manipulated in 1973, uh, the value of the US dollar increasingly to oil, oil purchases around the OPEC countries, you know, the, the petrodollar, um, making, of course, you know, only transactions for oil could occur in US, could be settled in US dollars. Um, that tied in things increasingly into a highly speculative, volatile world system that was more inclined towards uh, gambling 
um, rather than real investment in long-term needs of nation states that had been the previous pre-1971 way of thinking about economic uh, activity. Um, so that whole thing was, and I wrote an article, it's actually a chapter in, in my new book that's coming out pretty soon. Um, that became the time bomb. So our economy became a time bomb it, and that the increasing rates of speculative activity that increasingly grew into a cancerous derivatives monster, right? That, that all people, people were only looking at this when they thought of, of economic growth, where they were looking at the money and the increasing rate, the hyperbolic increasing rate of the monetary system, um, devoid of any consideration of, is that reflecting adequately, um, the physical economic growth? And in fact, when you started looking at the physical economic parameters, the productive industrial output, um, or the, the maintenance or improvement of vital infrastructure that keeps us alive, the agro-industrial component of Western economies, um, that was all, uh, driven into atrophy. So it's like we, we, we just stopped, right? Maintaining the basic economic infrastructures. Uh, that, that we just need to have to survive. And we started outsourcing all of the factories to using, uh, to increasingly cheap labor markets for sweatshop activity that fed our dollar stores. So that became a new type of addiction. We became less economically sovereign as this thing proceeded throughout the 1980s into the 90s and beyond. Um, so now we don't have much in the way of an ability to really heal and recover from that self-induced destruction over 50 years of slow atrophy. The people who built our, our, our infrastructure that, you know, that was all built primarily in the fifties, sixties, even into the seventies, we were still building things. Most of these people who had living knowledge are in their eighties, nineties or dead. You know, uh, we have young people, younger people who are trained to be engineers who are trained with computer models. They don't know how to build real things. Um, and that's a real crisis in, a, in terms of a living loss of living knowledge and the loss of means of doing things. Like we used to be able to Detroit used to be an industrial hub, right? Philadelphia. These are all like, dark age war zones now china is very different so you actually look at um people people often try to judge uh china as having like a lower per capita gdp ratio than the west and sure from a snapshot perspective it seems like we have a higher per capita gdp ratio for the time being same thing for russia comparatively but the rate of improvement, the rate of change is extraordinarily different. Here it's, it's in a, de, it's in a decline, a hyperbolic decline, I would say. It's, it's collapsing at a faster rate. We lost two years on average of life expectancy under the two years of, of uh, pandemic thus far, um, since 2000, end of 2019. Two years lost on average. It's huge in North America. Uh, China and Russia were seeing an increase. They've pulled over about a billion people out of poverty through China's uh, approach to thinking about large scale economic development. Um, you have more engineers who are capable of building things dramatically, 40,000 kilometers of high speed rail that can travel three to 400 kilometers an hour or faster. Even if you wanted to, uh, they're building, they have magnetic levitation rail grids set up. They're building five new systems. They already have one fully in place. Um, there's space tech soon, China and Russia together who have a joint program to, uh, co-build, and manage a research facility on the moon. Um, China has all massive exploratory development strategies for the far side of the moon, including also helium three mining for fusion power. The leading figures within their space agencies have talked extensively about this as the next generation of fuel source, uh, beyond anything we've ever seen. I mean, one, you know, truckload 
of helium-3, which is abundant on the moon, it hardly exists on the Earth, is sufficient to sustain 8 billion peoples at a very high standard of life for a year. That's one truckload. It completely, it's a game changer. So there's all sorts of things like that. Um, and when, again, you look at the, the quality of thinking, not only can they build these things and they have the means to build, they have the factory and the productive uh, powers of accomplishing these great works, which take us, you know, like eight years to build an extra bus stop in Canada. You know, like they talk about it um, and it ends up costing billions of dollars to build a few extra bus stops. Um, China can build, you know, like record breaking Guinness book of world record breaking, uh, tunnels and bridges and things in like weeks or months, you know, they could build a, a skyscraper in like a day. You see these, these, uh, amazing sped up videos and it's astounding. Um, but the, the, they're people who accelerate in the meritocracy system because it's a meritocracy, right? It's, it's not a, it's not a democracy. Um, there are people who actually have, who are engineers. They have the highest ratio of people who are engineers and scientists in government. Whereas here, if you look at the background of people like, you know, Anthony Sullivan, uh, Jake Sullivan or, uh, Blinken or, or Biden or any of, uh, the creepy characters who are positioned into, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, areas of, of managerial positions in the Western political structures, they have no real experience to do anything useful. They went straight from, you know, one ivory tower, th- you know, theorizing school and generally they're, they're, they have some legal background to learn how to be sophist and, and to weave an argument to without any consideration of truth, which is very, you know, a high value skill set if you go into modern day Western politics, but they don't know how to build anything. And, and so it's all just talk and, and illusion. Look at Justin Trudeau, right? I mean, it's amazing that this guy has been permitted to be uh, considered a, a leader of Canada where there's nothing behind the eyeballs and people, a lot of people don't see that. It should be obvious that there's nothing there. Same thing for Biden. Same thing for the, the head of NATO. Um, these people are, so it, again, it, it's, it's a question of quality. You, you actually have real human thinking and an ability to accomplish ideas that are in alignment with the needs, the objective scientific criteria that we need if we're going to support and improve, uh, life, human life and, uh, even look at India and China together, right? Those two countries. Through their economic activity and their, their reforestation programs and water management programs have increased the overall biomass on the earth. The NASA satellites came out conclusively proving that there's been a 5% increase in biomass primarily due to Russia, China and India, um, than there was 20 years ago. So they're actually doing things that are improving the, the overall ecosystems in many ways by greening deserts, moving giant amounts of water uh, from the south of China, where there's a lot of flooding, into the dr- the drought-ridden dry north. That's currently underway with the great, uh, you know, Move South Water North project. Not a very poetic name, but that's what they call it. Um, so they have, as you've pointed out, an alternative financial system that is being set up. Um, there's an alternative to SWIFT that both Russia and China have brought online since 2015 um, to settle uh, wire uh, transfers and, and uh, payments. Uh, India has increasingly signed up with Russia to permit for uh, the use of rubles and, and rupees um, to settle uh, their transactions between each other. Russia is a primary uh, weapons supplier uh, for the Indian military. Um, increasingly, Saudi Arabia is even making maneuvers, in, as we're seeing right now, to permit for the settlement of oil 
from oil deals and sales from Saudi Arabia in Yuan. That hasn't uh, become policy yet, but we see definitely that that's uh, leading figures within the Saudi establishment in China have have already started talking about this and are negotiating towards this. This completely ends if that if this were brought online, uh, the petrodollar um, that had been maintained since seventy three. So there's there's a lot happening, and I think it really depends on whether or not people like Glaziev um, are able to really get the type of re- power that he requires to accomplish the sorts of things that he. I mean, I've read a lot of his works, his speeches. He's got a high level understanding of the nature of the game, the nature of the beast, what you know, and what needs to be done. Um, and he's a lot of co-thinkers in China and in India and in other nations who are on the the same page. So whether I don't know to what degree, even now, the figures like, you know, there's a lot of carryovers from the 1990s in Russia that have not been expelled that have still influence like, you know, uh, Gaidar, um, one of the key privatizers who's currently has a lot of influence. Um, there's people like in the deputy, the deputy prime minister, um, Golikova um, of Russia, who's been managing the entire COVID response of Russia as, you know, sort of like a, a quasi Fauci type character in government. She is highly connected to Alexei Kudrin and other uh, Western liberalizers who are loyal only to the city of London and Wall Street. She's she's not been ousted yet. So I don't I don't know to what degree Putin still has to negotiate with these figures. I think things are moving much more quickly now, though, that we could see that the uh, the choice to play by the, uh, the 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 rules of the the neoliberal game are completely they're they're saying we're not willing to play by these these fake rules anymore so they forced the pus to the surface uh since calling out the lies around nato's growth around russia's perimeter um and you know everything that, that's occurred since february 24th has seen a uh, an increased push to to nationalize different operations especially in the media and if if what pepe's saying about mcdonald's being nationalized is true that's interesting um but I don't know. It really depends. There is, but there is a fight. And I think that's just the important thing to keep in mind. There's a fight and it's based upon these certain objective parameters founded upon the idea of the science of maintaining human life, whether or not we are going to get into this green great reset depopulation cage, um, the way some in the West would like, or whether we go for, um, the type of idea of green post you know, globalization uh, systems that we see coming out of those who really want to green deserts, pull people out of poverty and empower nations economically to have full spectrum industrial um, economic bases, which is, again, you know, when you look at the China approach to investments in Africa, people talk about debt traps and all this stuff. No, it's they're not at all. You, this has been disproven again and again. China is investing in, and actually driving large-scale economic development in Kenya, Ethiopia, all over Africa, and, and into the, they're offering reconstruction projects for the Middle East that's been ravaged by years of, of Western manipulation. And they're they're training new generations of engineers to do it themselves. They're actually encouraging the investments of local industries to have that type of economic sovereignty, which has been prevented. Um, from happening in these countries under 70 years of IMF World Bank controls. So they're doing things very differently. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's a whole discussion unto itself. I know we're running out of time. Yeah. We got, I think we've got about 10 minutes or so left, a little more. Um, you mentioned our Western leaders. In general, I'm not a fan of 
most uh, politicians anywhere, even outside of the, of the West, especially after the past two years when the mask came off. I mean, before the whole pandemic deal, I still had hope and, you know, some local politicians here in Mexico and other places. And once the whole show started and, and seeing them just go along with everything, uh, showing that they've been uh, bought off. So I'm generally not a fan, but as I mentioned earlier, we have those X factors that I, I can I can be fans of. Uh, if there are any remaining, you know, the JFKs uh, of the world and so on. And I just wanted to comment uh, my, my view on our Western leaders. You mentioned Trudeau and others. Uh, they're like uh, a lot like clowns, you know, Boris Johnson, uh, Justin Trudeau, and less like Bozo the Clown and more like uh, Stephen King It's <laughs> the Clown. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, you brought it up and, you know, I guess one of the last questions would be, and I'm always trying to figure this question out because it's going to affect us all. Um, what the decline will be like, the economic, uh, political, uh, capital, you know, the, the cultural decline of the West. You're there in Canada, you know, of Canada, of the U.S., of, of Western Europe as the rest of the world rises. I think we saw a defense minister in Canada just say, you know, they sent off a bunch of weapons to Ukraine, and now Canada has a shortage of, of funds or weapons for their own self-defense. I'm like, you're seeing it everywhere, in the military sphere, in, in the cultural sphere. Uh, I had a past guest on Geopolitics and Empire, Chinese-American, um, Taiwanese-American physicist who confirmed that, yeah, mo- there was that poll, many American youth want to be YouTubers while, you know, Chinese youth want to be astronauts. So we're seeing across the board this decline um, what are your thoughts on, and I oscillate between a more moderate, moderate, slow decline uh, as opposed to like this accelerated collapse. Uh, for the longest time, I, I thought we'd see a, a faster collapse and America has been resilient uh, for a while. And so in general, what are your thoughts on what the decline in the West will look like? You know, I don't know how constructive that is. Um, I've got my thoughts on it. It's just, it's kind of like, I try to keep my, um, my remarks, um, geared towards things that might actually be useful. Um, based, uh, just to be quick, I mean, based upon my research of past, uh, civilizational, uh, systemic breakdown functions, um, there is a, it's sort of like a bending of a stick, you know, like it seems to be a sort of gradualism as you're bending the stick and the, the tension is building up into the center of the stick that you're, that you're bending. But that tension buildup has a sort of built in breaking point to it. And that snap, when it does officially snap, it, it's a new world you're in, right? Like that's a new type of function of uh, chaos, um, and, uh, decay then one you know it's it's a bit scary to look at i mean a low level version was the quick the, the quickness and speed of what happened after the great depression in 1929 it was you know um it it, it was gradual in a certain way i guess you know there's like 4 years of the worst of it that peaked in 1932 but that was a very quick break um this is much bigger this is, you know, the Western economy now is much more integrated. The derivatives bubble is much bigger. There's 8 billion of us today, whereas back in 1929, there was barely 2 billion. Um, so the higher you are, the harder they fall, they say, you know. Um, so in that sense, I think that the, um, 
it won't be pretty. The supply chain breakdown is very serious. Um, we see the, the expulsion that you pointed out, the military functions, the defense systems. I mean, I mean, just the, the nature of the oligarchy's structure is to, um, s- destroy. It's kind of like a parasite that only knows how to destroy the host that it itself kind of needs to parasitically, uh, you know, loot and, and suckle on in order to survive. And then the parasite tends to go into its own crisis. And so all of world history going back thousands of years is littered with examples of the oligarchy achieving at different times its ultimate desires and then killing its, whether it's the Roman imperial host that overextended itself uh, beyond its ability to support its own existence and thus, you know, weakened its own ability to uh, to exist both physically but also morally as well. Its, its own population became so corrupt and decadent. There was like, you know, 200 plus days of the year were festivals of bread and circuses and, and free-flowing wine. Um, that just brought more looting into the capital as more, uh, nations on the outskirts were, were raped and turned into slave colonies. So, I mean, that, that, that's unsustainable. That's, and the oligarchy that reaps the benefit, um, during that period of the Roman Empire's existence didn't benefit upon the collapse. They had to sort of, they freaked out. They had to sort of like, uh, reorganize themselves and try to reconstitute their empire elsewhere. In that case, it had happened to have been, uh, the Venetian lagoons that became their center of command afterwards, which lasted for about a thousand years of that being the new center of evil <laughs> until that, that started also disintegrating onto it, you know, under its own, um, immorality and, and, uh, self contradictions. And then they had to sort of migrate elsewhere that became the British and Amsterdam area, um, which became taken over and turned from a Republican zone under Henry the seventh and Thomas More and Erasmus. And it became increasingly turned into an empire of, you know, hellfire club immorality and, and central banking, um, city of London type, you know, um, evil that, that recolonized and took control to try to create a new British, a new Roman empire. They've increasingly since world war two tried to infest and take control of the rebellious USA, um, at, you know, killing JFK and many other patriots along the way. Um, but the center of command t- today is still uh, Venetian. It's still British uh, more than it is American. That's why America has self-destructed so much. It didn't really, you know, no one can say that the U.S. actually benefited by the 50 years of globalization um, that we've that we've seen. And so, I mean, the empire is now third generation. The people like George Soros, uh, you know, Jacob Rothschilds who are high level within the system, you know, they're in their nineties. They're about to die. They're, they're already like low level thinkers compared to the old school HG Wells, Bertrand Russell, Lord Palmerston type thinkers who are much higher, higher quality evil minds, you know, um, the younger generation, even st- younger still like George Soros's kid are themselves victims and creatures of the, the cultural uh, degeneracy that the empire has put on to destroy and undermine its own victims under a new form of like spiritual opium war. They're, they're, they play video games. They do drugs. They're, they're, they're dumber and dumber. And so I think in that sense, I get a bit of hope knowing that the empire's ability to produce the minds it needs to, uh, affect its aims is very low. Like the best they could get for a, a stooge in the U S or Canada is like Biden or Trudeau. Like my God, you know, that's the best you got. <laughs> um, so I've, I've got to say, I don't have, I think it could get very messy and, and maybe scary in the, in the short term. I do have much higher hope that looking at the quality of statecraft and thinking from Eurasian uh, leaders right now, um, I do have a, a, a sense of 
faith in the competency and ability to carry out a battle from those countries um, that are, they seem to be on the same page for the first time we have, you know, Iran, China, Russia together with many other countries on board. This is a big new Brzezinski's like nightmare that he wrote about as something that should never be allowed to happen in his grand chessboard. Um, this is happening and there's a certain common view. Um, so again, my, my, if I was only looking at my backyard right now, I'd, I'd be a lot more pessimistic and depressed. Uh, I, to the degree that I take a historical and global view of things, um, I have a lot more optimism. But I, I'm not good at saying what is literally going to happen in the coming storm that we're we're now embarking in. I'm not too sure about the details of the ins and outs of that. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, the Rothschild and, and company, 90 years old, they're about to die. I don't think so. I mean, they're going to get the singularity pretty soon and live forever and then <laughs> trap us in uh, in the prison planet. You know, so <laughs> no, I, they're going to upload uh, upload to the their idea of heaven is just the cloud, no heaven, just cloud <laughs> that they can upload their yeah. uh, their minds into. Yeah, yeah. Um, we got about I think uh, two minutes uh, left. If you could tell us, I mean, you you do so much. I, I don't even know how how you do it. I guess I think you don't have kids, which um, is, is is allows you more time. But you've got uh, you got like I don't know how many books published now. Or Rising Tide Foundation, um, working with American Moscow University, writing so many articles. Your Substack, uh, your weekly lectures for Substack subscribers. Uh, tell us uh, what you're working on and, and where people can best uh, find you on the DARPA net. Yeah, right. Well, I guess the easiest way it would be to go to risingtidefoundation.net, which uh, I manage. My wife is the president of that, Cynthia, who's also uh, an excellent writer for strategic culture as well. Um, we have weekly events, meetings, lectures that we host uh, as part of an educational exp- process that people can, if listeners want to participate live and get the Zoom, Zoom invitations, all they need to do is uh, send an email request to info at risingtidefoundation.net. It's every Sunday at 2 p.m. Otherwise, if they want to pick up my books or look at some of the, the political writings, they can go to uh, CanadianPatriot.org. Uh, the books are very easy to purchase there. And uh, the Substack, that's sort of my bread and butter. So if anybody wants to help out, um, they can just sign up to my Substack, MatthewErit.Substack.com. Um, there's free and paid uh, versions, which is, again, yeah, not having children in this case yeah it does give us a bit of an edge to be a bit more productive <laughs> um than other people um are um but uh, you know the, the the times just demand it right like uh it's there's a hunger right now and a, uh, in i i do see an awakening and a, and a hunger that i've never seen before from people who do want to make sense so we just have to supply that and you're doing a great job of that and congratulations on the show her yeah, and that's what I'm doing with TNT. All right. Thank you, Matt. And see you, everyone on the other side for the third hour on TNT Radio.